Chapter 2, Act 2. Now Naomi had a relative on the husband's side of the family named Boaz. He was a wealthy, prominent man from the clan of Elimelech. So now you're introduced to actually the Hebrew. It actually communicates the idea of not now. That word now is not literally powerful and captivating enough. That word in the Hebrew actually is more the idea of behold, Boaz. Dun, 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 dun. It's, it's, it's a word that grabs your attention and says, everybody, you're, you're weeping your eyes out. It's a depressing, dark, tragic scene. And all of a sudden, the narrator of the story grabs your head and jerks it to the left and forces you to look at Boaz, and he's coming in. And that's what it does. That word behold, if you were going to make this into a movie, is the director's cue of where to put the camera. That's where the focus should be. Now all of a sudden, what you're thinking is a man who's also a relative. That's huge. If you're an Israelite in the ancient culture, that's the equivalent of our knight in shining armor. Just not in the romantic sense, but in the economic survival kind of a sense. And that's what the narrator is grabbing your attention to. So we're told that he had a relative, husband's side, the family of Boaz, he just happens to be from the clan of Elimelech. Now, notice Elimelech's name is dead, his, but his name is still being used. And that's showing you that, the, 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 that we're in the second scene, and Elimelech's been gone for a long time, or second act, and yet Elimelech's still coming up in the story. Because it's, it's really about him. It's really about him. So his name is Boaz. Boaz means strength, but not physical strength, but like a strength of character. We're told that he's wealthy, which means he's able to take care of them. He's, um, and he has the right to take care of them because he's a relative. And he's a prominent man, which a lot of your translations might say a man of good standing. And the idea is that he's a well-respected man of integrity. So he's integrity, the com- he's a leader in the community, he's wealthy, and he's a relative. He is capable, he has the right and he might actually have the character to actually take care of them. And that's the first thing you're introduced to. And an Israelite reading this would see all those words and think, this is it. The light has just gotten brighter. So he had a field. He is what's called the kinsman redeemer. Now the kinsman redeemer comes to Leviticus chapter 25. In Leviticus chapter 25, God makes it very clear that any person who has to sell themselves into slavery in a financial bankruptcy kind of a way, or anybody who has to sell their land in a financial bankruptcy kind of a way, then if there is a relative, a kin, who is financially capable of buying their land or freedom so that they don't go into debt, is responsible for doing that, expected by God and the covenantal law of love God and love others to take care of them. The emphasis is not even, it kind of uses the word willing, but the idea is they, they are. If you're part of the covenant, you are, and if you're not willing, then you're not part of the covenant. If they're, and, 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 and they have to be financially capable. God does not expect you if you're complete poverty and you can't even take care of your own self. He's like, okay, now you have to go over there and save this person's land. Because you can't. So they're financially capable. So we're told that he's a relative. Thing that you must understand. This is any relative. 
The closest relative must do it first, and if he's unwilling, then it goes to the next closest, the next closest. But the closest has to be given the opportunity. And if he rejects it, then there's a curse, so to speak, on him, but then it goes to the next. So he has to be financially capable, and it has to go in order of next of kin. But it can be any next of kin, depending on how many people reject it. And if he rejects it because he's not financially capable, there is no curse. But he's only responsible for redeeming the person's life or their land. That's it. He's not responsible for providing children. That's very important. So we're immediately introduced that this is a kinsman redeemer. He's integrity. He's respected. He has land. He's wealthy. He's capable. The question is, Will he actually do it? One day, Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the fields so I can gather grain behind whoever permits me to do so. What she is talking about is gleaning. Gleaning comes from Leviticus chapter 19. In Leviticus 19, God commands gleaning. And gleaning is basically where a landowner is required to do two things for the poor. They are not allowed to harvest the corners of their fields. So they must leave the corners unharvested and they, any grain that they accidentally drop in the middle of the fields while they're picking up, they're not allowed to turn around and go back and get it. And the idea is that they must leave this for the poor. They must leave this for the poor to gather and take. And, it's there, and once again, God has woven into the law of taking care of the needy and the poor. What this does is this is the beauty of God is that God is very much about welfare, very much about taking care of the needy and the poor. He does not believe that poor people are poor because they're lazy. He believes that poor poverty comes in all different reasons and why, and so you must take care of them. But at the same time, he also requires the poor to work for it. They do have to go in the fields, and they do have to do some kind of work of harvesting, and they do have to pick up the grain, because we also know through many, many, many studies that have been done for different, many different groups of people that people don't value things that they don't work or pay for. God has woven into his covenant community people a work ethic that where the poor and the needy will value what they have gained, but at the same time that the wealthy have to take care of the poor. But here's the other thing. The law never said how big the corners have to be. Now I know this is going to be very corny sounding, but the size of the corner of your fields determines the size, based on the size of your heart. The law only commanded you to do certain things. The law never regulated how far or how big your love would be as you do it. And so I could be completely legally obeying the law and just leave two stalks of wheat in every corner. And I would be completely obedient to the law. Yet in my heart, I am selfish and greedy. But those who realize that the heart of the law was love God and love others, and the heart of the law was not coveting, and the heart of the law was taking care of the poor and the needy, and defending the oppressed will make their corners bigger. And when the people realize that the point of the law was also that you love sacrificially, 
then they might even make those corners so big that it will hurt. And even in tithing today, yes, 10% is a good place to start because most economic levels that you're at, 10% hurts. But God actually doesn't command you to tithe 10%. He commands you to tithe sacrificially. You find a number that hurts, and that's what you're supposed to tithe. Now, technically, I would say, most importantly, you ask God to give you a number, and God will give you a number that hurts. <laughs> and the point is because you're trusting that God will take care of you more than your financial economic stability. And then you can see God at much greater impact in your life when he's doing amazing things despite the fact that you literally cannot survive on this income after you've tithed. Boaz may be doing this. He may not be doing this. But she says that she's going to find a field where somebody is doing it. Now, what's the likelihood that people in America would do this? We're, we're doing incredibly well economically. I mean, despite what the media says, we're in this economic collapse, but yet when you go out to restaurants, they're completely packed every night of the week, and like sales at stores are going through the roof, and movie tickets and iPhones, and so the reality is we're doing well. And Columbus is actually doing better than pretty much any other city in the U.S. What's the likelihood that people are literally going to just, okay, you're a store owner, and you're going to leave these two aisles free, for any poor person to come and take whatever they want. And your company, whatever, your house. You're going to leave this corner of your house free for any poor person to come in and take any furniture that is there. Okay, I know these are extreme examples, but this is kind of the idea of a gleaning. What's the likelihood that people are doing that when there's a lot of godly... I mean, most Christians don't even tithe. Let alone in the time period of the judges. So if you're reading this, you're thinking, yeah, right, woman, you're not going to find anything. Now, I'll give you a, I think this is such a cool story. Now, remember, the law says you must leave the corners of your field for gleaning. And most of us will say, well, one, I'm not under the law anymore. And two, even if I was under the law, I don't have fields. So I guess I'm out of that one. But there's this video series, you probably, most of you have done it. It got really big in the early 2000s called The Truth Project. And the guy who led it was Del Tackett. And he tells a story of this guy who came to this story and really felt really convicted that he needed to do this. And that, and he happened to own a company and he made wood furniture. And he felt really convicted that as a owner of a company that produced a product, that he needed to do this. Not because he felt like he was under the law and had to do it, but because he just really felt like God was moving him to do that and he wanted to do that. But he was like, what in the world does gleaning look like as a furniture worker? So he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. And eventually God gave him the idea that he, at the end of every single day, he would send his workers, after they build furniture and whatever, into the shop. And he believed very much in keeping the shop clean. And if you don't keep the shop clean, then you can't work after a while. And that they would sweep up all the sawdust. But as being a mass producer of wood furniture, they produce tons of sawdust, enough that they would take it to another company that actually buys it from you. So that they can make it into particle boards and all kinds of other things. And he realized at that moment that was his gleanings. He basically, at the end of the day, 
He told the workers that they could go home and they were done. They were no longer having to do that. And he opened up his doors to the homeless and people in the community to come in. And they swept up his shop of sawdust, like picking the grain from the corners. And they gathered up what they could, like being in the fields. And they took it to that company and they sold it to them and they got the money. And it became an incredible way to take care of the poor. It gave him a sense of work ethic, a value, a meaning. It started building a community and a rapport, and it started giving him a chance to love them and talk to them over a period of time. And I think that's a great example of what it means to not be under the law, but the law is still a great testimony of what it means to love people. And the question is, what is my gleanings today? Now, this is specifically for landowners, but at the same time, remember, the point is not legally obeying the law. There's two grains right there in the corner. But that I want to love other people because I can't help to because God first loved me. The question is, what does it look like to translate the law into my life and my culture? We don't have fields. We don't have donkeys. We don't have any of that stuff anymore. But we have the equivalent of it. What is gleanings for us today? Where you're giving a sense of work ethic and community to somebody, but at the same time you're providing for people who are challenged in a lot of ways to get just get a job. And I think that's an incredible story of what it looks like to kind of translate this law. And so this is what Boaz is doing. So Naomi says, you may go, daughter, so Ruth went out and gathered grain in the fields behind the harvesters. Now she just happened to end up in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. She just happened. This is the narrator's way of saying she just happened to end up in the field of a relative who is actually gleaning in the time period of the judges. Wink, wink, wink. The providence of God probably the only guy who's actually doing this and she just happens to end up in the field of not only a guy who's doing it but a guy that also just happens to be related to her Naomi and she's gleaning you're seeing the light shine a little bit brighter and a little bit brighter as this goes on next scene now at that very moment Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters may Yahweh be with you they replied, or sorry, and they replied, may Yahweh bless you. I think that right there's an incredible statement. He is the owner of the field. All these people work for him. He shows up every day and he says, may Yahweh be with you. And everybody in unison shouts back, may Yahweh bless you. Now, if you went to work one day, and you were at work doing on the grind, and you got this new boss, and he comes in, and he just walks in to Chase Bank Nationwide, like restaurant, grocery stores, banking, psychology, whatever you guys are. And he walks in the offices and he says, May Yahweh be with you. And everybody stands up and says, May Yahweh bless you. And you're like, That would never happen in America. This is the time period of the judges. That's powerful. Now, at first, even as a Christian, I guarantee you, I would sit there and be like, this guy is weird. 
<laughs> okay, he's one of those Christians. Because that, especially as an introvert, that would be like, what in the heck is going on? It, and, and, and being a skeptic on top of that, I'd be like, this is so fake and contrived. But what if, over time, day after day after day, as you interacted with him or her, and he says it every single day, and you interact with them, you begin to realize that they are really genuine. And they really mean it. And they really care about you. I mean, he's allowing people to glean in the time period of the judges. He's a man of integrity. And he's saying this kind of stuff. I guarantee you that that would affect. We all know that bosses can make and break communities. We know where you've had this awesome boss for a long time and everything's great. And there's a sense of community. And then a new boss comes in and, he does, and everything goes downhill. Everybody turns into these cretins. And then you've seen it go the other way too. Or unfortunately, maybe some of you have always had bad bosses. <laughs> you've never had that. But we know that bosses can change the environment so quickly and how people respond to even each other when they're not there. Complaining can go up or down based on how a boss does things. And if you had a boss like that, I guarantee you that everybody would probably begin to say that back to him in some kind of way. Maybe not in such a musical stage kind of way like this feels, but I guarantee that people would return it in some way, whatever their personality or character allows them to do it. And they may not exactly believe in Yahweh. They may not be a Christian, but they'll still say it back because even though they don't believe in God, they believe in the love that this guy has created in their community and they want to be a part of that and return it back. And all they know is that he is creating this atmosphere and he says Yahweh and they like being in that atmosphere and so they're going to say Yahweh too. And maybe eventually it'll lead to their conversion. But even if they're not converting, I guarantee you they would still probably say that. I mean, you've known that when you say like, I've said to people, and I've heard people say, I'll pray for you. And you know that prayer is the furthest thing away from their mind. And they kind of respond, oh, I'll pray for you too. Like, oh, thanks. They're so blown away and they're so grateful that you would do that, even though they don't believe in it and they don't believe in your God. The fact that that just communicates such an act of love, they can't help but say it back to you, even though they don't even know what that really means. And if he did this day in and day out, he is such a man that in the time period of the judges, he has created a community of people that is unlike the judges because of his character and his love. That's Boaz. I'm just thinking also the other side of the coin is he's being held accountable. I mean, when he says that, they are looking up to him and seeing his life. Very good. And that's a great comment too, which means like, yes, like I said, if we find out that that boss is not genuine and he's a hypocrite, they will, they will chump on him. But the fact that they return that means that he is living that comment out in real life. That's a great point. That, that his actions are communicating that. that. They believe in it. And I think that's incredible testimony to Boaz. In the time period of the judges when he has every right to say, but I got to hold on to my own because look how everybody in the world is operating. And if I don't hold on to my own, I'm going to die. But he, he releases it. And then there's a time period that judges when everybody's immoral and men are just a crap right now. He's 
integrity and godly. And they respond this way because his name is Boaz, strength of character. And it's been contagious in the community. Boaz asked his servant in charge of the harvesters, to whom does this young woman belong? The servant in charge of the harvesters replied, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the, nation, the region of Moab. She asked, may I follow the harvesters and gather grain among the bundles? And since she arrived, she has been working hard from morning until now, except for sitting in the resting hut a short time. Now he notices who she is. But he notices who she is because in a culture and a community where everybody knows everybody, the person that is not a part of the community stands out like a sore thumb. And notice that when the men of the culture, the men of the field reply back, they emphasize what? Two things. She's a hard worker and she's the one that has sacrificed everything to take care of Naomi. A foreigner. Notice how the author, the narrator keeps referring to her as, it's not just Ruth, it's Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite. Like, wow, okay, get off of it, narrator. I'm a foreigner, yes. But there's a reason for that. And so they say, the foreigner has come into our land and sacrificed everything to take care of one of our own. I mean, how often does that happen? And not only that, she's a hard worker and hardly rests. That's what they notice. And even when Boaz starts talking to her, that's the thing that he's going to praise her for. Now, if this was made into an American movie, what it would say is Boaz would be like, whoa, who is that hot woman over there? And the men are like, oh my gosh, we can barely work anymore. We've just been staring at her all the time. And we all want to be with her. And Boaz is like, but I'm the owner of the field. She's mine. And you know that's how it'll work. Because that's what Hollywood does. In fact, did you know that Hollywood actually made this book into a movie? And it became a very popular movie. It's called Pretty Woman. And it's about a man who slept with a prostitute, fell in love with her, and financially rescued her from a life of prostitution, all based on romance, love, and lust. And it was celebrated as one of the greatest romantic movies of American history film. And it is the, the Ruth and Boaz story. And when America read this, they saw sex, love, lust, money, power. Richard Gere, Julia Robert. See, this is not a romance story. This is not an American chick flick story. This is a story about love. But it's a story about hesed. Sacrificial, active love. Not feel good, romantically operating on your emotions in the moment, love. Like what most of our movies are about. This is so countercultural to America. Every single time movies mostly do stories about love, it's people that are infatuated. It's feelings. It's, it's sparks flying. And not that romance shouldn't be a part of your relationship, but romance is not the basis the foundation, the starting point. Romance is the spice that is added to a covenantal, sacrificial, committed, long-suffering love of action and commitment. And what he notices and what everybody notices is her character, her work ethic, 
and her sacrificial love. And that's what they see. That's what they notice. And when men in the locker room are talking like that, you know that's powerful. And the time period of the judges. And that's what she stands out. And that's the equivalent of Jacob, who noticed Rachel, who had a lovely body, but completely missed Leah, whose eyes were lovely and beautiful, deep of character. And Rachel never even calls on Yahweh, and Leah does. Rachel never praises Yahweh, yet Leah does. Rachel brings idols into the house, yet Leah proclaims Yahweh. And yet all Jacob can see is the American chick flick. And yet Boaz steps into the scene, and he sees Leah. He sees Ruth. He sees the character. And the, the character of Ruth is so powerful that even the men of the field... And maybe the men of the field are more likely to see her character and not her beauty because they've been so trained by Boaz for how many years in the time period of the judges. And if you think as one man or one woman that you can't affect the circle or the community of people around you, then you're wrong because that you know how powerfully influential our culture is on our kids and even us. And we're not nearly as depraved as this culture. And yet in the midst of the judges, Boaz, and maybe some other key men and women that we haven't been told about in this particular story, have created an oasis of biblical godly character that has affected everybody. And I'm not saying all these people are perfect, because even Abraham was an incredible man of righteousness, but he was not perfect. But there's something different about this community. And Boaz is largely responsible for this. And Ruth is largely responsible for this. This is what he notices. 